Welcome to the Self-Improvement Book Club with Rachel. And today we have guest Sharon Fisher, who is the author of the book, Beyond the Egg Timer, a companion guide for having babies in your mid-30s and older. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. (laughs) So I know you wrote this book with Emma Williams. Can you tell me your experience of writing a book with someone else? That's a great question. And it's something that Emma and I have uh, reflected upon in this process because we had never, we had worked with other people professionally, collaboratively, of course, but had never worked with a friend on a project this big and had never written anything personally. Um, And it was, it definitely kept our friendship a lot closer than I think normally happens with just how life goes. You know, it it forced a proximity um, that no matter how fond you are of somebody, as as life goes on, you get busy. And she had moved um, at some point during this process from Baltimore out to Western Maryland. So there was even like physical space between us. But life gets busy. And this forced us to talk regularly. It forced us to be close and continues to, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, we are like yin and yang. So we work great together. I'm like the tigger. She's like a very um, thoughtful, reserved, let's, you know, overly cautious. I'm like, let's just do it. Let's just see what happens. And, and there's no thought to it. So we're, we just balance each other. Great. Well, I relate to your personality a little bit. Better. <laughs> I'm just like, let's go for it. So I get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you need someone that's actually going to put thought into things. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I read it was, it began as a six month project, but it ended up taking five years to write this book. Wow. Well, I've heard you write a book. That's <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I know like in our industry, there's always people like write your book, do your ebook, you know, do, kind of do this, this, this and that. And I'm like, how are people like just putting this stuff out there? Um, what took us a long time? Well, first of all, I always, you know, when we started, I didn't have any children. I was in the process of trying to conceive. Emma had two very young children. She worked full time and she was actually out of the country a lot for her work as well. And I always think in retrospect, wow, was she a good friend to agree to do this with me? Because if I had, I had always clueless. I had no idea that you shouldn't probably ask somebody with all that going on to help you write a book. Um, but it took a while to really get the concept down of what we wanted. Like we knew we had to get the info out there Um, but the format that took a long time. Um, and then because they're first person narratives that took a long time to collect. And then we really wanted, uh, professional editing, professional book design, professional cover design. And so all of that really took time, but it was when I was, uh, pregnant with my second child that she really put her foot down and said, we've got, you know, we have to publish this else we're not publishing it. And so that's how it took five years. (laughs) Yeah. And like when I was reading this book, I had a ton of friends that were over the age of 35 with their first children, or, you know, I kind of really related to it, um, that had trouble getting pregnant and went through journeys that lost, you know, babies through this. So like all of this, I, I related to, and, um, my own experience and some of my friends. And it sounds like the overriding goal of the book was to normalizing having children later in life. So tell me about, I guess, just the concept of the book in general. Yeah, you nailed it, Rachel. It's all about normalizing and validating. So you have to go back 
about 10 years when we first started this project, because I th I, I'm hoping, it seems to me things are getting better. Um, but about 10 years ago, when we were, um, I was 35 or 36. Yeah, I guess that sounds right. There was so much shaming out there and so much misinformation, so much misinformation. Everybody was still saying 35 was the fertility cliff. There is no scientific evidence that supports that. In fact, actually, shortly after we started the project, there was a great article in the Atlantic, um, D, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically busting that, busting that myth, basically explaining there's no evidence to that. And that was helpful to an extent, but I think it also went ignored somewhat. There was a lot of shaming. Like women were just, we're just cavalier. We're just career obsessed. I'm putting that in quotes for your listeners. And that wasn't, that wasn't my, first of all, that wasn't my experience. Second of all, uh, we, we started, my husband and I started when I was, I had just turned 34, I think. I got married at 33. He wanted to wait six months. It seemed very reasonable. I was 34. So I wasn't real. There wasn't truth to that. I was under the, you know, the threshold. And nobody I knew, like you said, most of the people I knew either didn't have problems or they didn't have problems that were like, they, they were having biological children. Um, Emma had her children at home. You know, so she and she was over 35 when she had them. So she had home birth. So it's very low risk. Um, but more importantly, too, like when we finally saw a reproductive endocrinologist, which, of course, is the, the Western medicine fertility specialist, she's like, no, you're not too old at all. You guys test normally, you know. Um, and so and then when I actually was pregnant, the midwife, I had a hospital birth with a midwife uh, was like just like, who cares about, I was 38, like, kind of like, who cares, right? Like, I mean, this just was like, not, you know, a big deal. But the other part of it too, was the women we knew weren't career obsessed, but most of them had picked careers that just take a really long time to get your credentials. And I see no difference. You know, I like to use the hairdresser surgeon comparison, which sometimes pisses off surgeons, but that's more their issue, but both are great careers. You know, both are great careers. If you're called to be a stylist, that's wonderful. But the thing is, you can get all your credentials by the time you're like 20 and do that. Yeah. You know, and then you can have your own shop and you can be well on your way, well on your way, financial security, you know, you have everything you need. But if you want to be a surgeon, you're like at least 30, 35 before you're even done your training. And you can't say that a hairdresser is more maternal than a surgeon. That would be the most ridiculous thing on earth. I mean, some are, some aren't. Right? It has nothing to do with your professional choice. And so it wasn't career obsession, but it was careers for many of them that just took a long time. And for myself, my career did not take a long time, but I worked for an organization that offered free graduate, free tuition to free, you know, anywhere you wanted to go as long as it's accredited. So like to me, I wasn't getting pregnant. I might as well just keep going to school. Like it's free. I like learning. Like it wasn't this, it just wasn't that thing. And it certainly wasn't selfishness that we saw for people who delayed. It was more like wanting to be in the right space emotionally, which to me is like the opposite. It's like how giving to your child to make sure you're like a hundred percent good. So that's a long answer to your question, but yeah, very much about, because back then, I mean, it's still, uh, the biases are still very prevalent today, but they were much worse back then as well. Yeah. And I, I just, I have a quote from your book that 
some women need to develop their careers, travel, get to know themselves, right? Sometimes we're not, like you said, emotionally ready, or we don't know ourselves or heal. And I love this heal from painful experiences. What if you're not in the right relationship yet? And that's what delays you, or, you know, you do need to get to know yourself. So I thought that was a great point in your book and you, you said it, um, just there, but, um, I had it written down. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I was like, yeah, that, that totally. And I liked your point in the book about, um, 200 years ago, women had the life expectancy of 40 years, right? Um, things have changed a lot. And this hit me that 40 at 40, we feel like we're finally hitting our stride as women. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot has changed in that development also. Um, so I guess, in terms of writing this book, was there a certain chapter that you really enjoyed writing or a point that you really got into? I think, so I loved interviewing the women and learning their stories um, in general. I didn't do all the interviews. We split them. I loved that, but I loved writing the epilogue. I wrote most, there's, the epilogue is like a central thing. And then there's my part and Emma's part. I pretty much wrote the central thing that's from both of us. And I loved writing it because it really just expresses the uncertainty of everything. And that's something we have to really embrace. I think we really fight against, against that. You know, we, a lot of people have this, this life plan. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to start my career. I'll meet that perfect person. We'll get married, buy a house, have a baby. And for, first of all, there's no one whose life goes exactly how they plan it, which is probably why I I think it's a bad idea to to plan your life so strictly. But for so many people, especially women who have their first child over 35, that wasn't the plan. And being able to flow with that plan, right? You were in the wrong relationship, you get divorced, or you just really couldn't find someone and and you didn't want to be in a relationship that wasn't good. Or you had to switch careers because you just realized you hated that first thing you did. Um, that that that's okay. Um, embrace that. Or for people who've gone through infertility, we really have to embrace the uncertainty because when I you know when I work work with women professionally who are going through that you know or have had a lot of losses, there's always this mindset. Well, if like if I just get through the delivery and have a live baby, everything will be okay. And it's like, no, you're then you're just going to start worrying about all the things that can happen to the baby after the birth side. You know, it just doesn't end. It, you have to embrace uncertainty if, for anyone, but especially for parenting. And I think that's what that's a lot that's about that epilogue. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. That's definitely um, important to know, like the uncertainty part. And yes, we never stop worrying about our children ever. <laughs> it can be. It can be adults, but that never goes away. Um, So you talk about in chapter one, like decision fatigue or choice fatigue. Tell me a little bit more about that part of it. Yeah, I think that we're faced with all of these. We have too many options, really, you know, I mean, and I think what happens when people start, you know, people who are intentional about having children is after those first few months when they're not getting pregnant, it starts to go into this like information overload and these rabbit holes, especially if you're older, because truthfully, you know, even though we're all hashtag beyond the egg timer, there there is a time limit here, right? Um, and so it can be the information can be overwhelming, and then you you really um, yeah, you just can't. And so if we can slow it down, 
um, and take some space to really make more informed decisions and feel more empowered them in, in making them versus pressured to make them that can go a long way in easing the journey. Yeah, there was some really, really good advice in there for that. Um, and you used RAP um, to help make the decisions. Um, can you summarize that part for people maybe making big decisions? Yeah. So Rap comes from Chip and Dan Heath's work. Um, they have some great books. They're brothers who I guess are more in like the, I don't really know their background so, so much, but they write some really great like career type advice books. Um, and so RAP is a way of making decisions and it stands for widen your options. I actually have to look it up myself because I'm blanking. Widen your options, reality test your assumptions, attain distance and prepare to be wrong. And I love that because what I see so often in people is like, okay, I'm 38. I really want to be a mother. I haven't met anybody I guess I'm just not going to be a parent. Right. And it's like, well, wait, wait a minute, you know, let's explore then the idea of being a, a single parent on your own. Right. Um, reality test your assumptions, or let's explore the idea of freezing eggs, you know, or, um, I, one of the biggest things we ran into, because once I started being really open about our journey, everybody wanted to talk to me about their journey, um, which is great, right? Because this isn't even talked about. And I would hear so often, well, I can't do fertility treatment because we can't afford it. Well, in the state of Maryland, now in the state of Maryland, insurance is mandated to actually cover it, cover it or cover a good percentage of it. When we were going through it, it was mandated to cover the initial evaluation. So unless if you were on like medical assistance, your insurance was going to cover that evaluation. Um, and so I would say like, well, that's, you know, you're real, you have to test that assumption because it's not, that's not really true. And sometimes that evaluation can reveal things that your regular, you know, your medical insurance will fix, so to speak, that could be affecting your fertility, but it'll be covered because it also affects your health, such as endometriosis, right? Um, that's, can definitely interfere with implantation, but it can also cause significant distress every month, pain, excessive bleeding, all sorts of other symptoms. So that even if you don't want children, that's something that should be medically addressed. And so therefore it's covered by insurance um, or, you know, the opposite way. I'll have people tell me like, well, I'm just going to keep trying. And at a certain point I'll adopt. And it's like, well, I would really, I'm all for adoption if you want to do it, but don't wait till you're 50 to try to adopt because it's very hard uh, the birth parents typically don't want parents that old adopting their children. Um, so that's, that's not a guarantee. Um, attain distance, right? We get so caught up with the, uh, we're, we're so tied emotionally to it that if we can step back, um, especially with fertility, we just feel like, oh, I'm not pregnant to make these decisions. I'm not pregnant. It's like, really, if you wait another month or two to make a decision about what you're going to do, nothing's going to change in that. I'm not saying wait two years, but nothing's going to change in two months. And just prepare to be wrong about all of your assumptions. Um, you know, I know so many people that are so afraid of medical interventions or they're afraid of, I don't know, side effects of things like just, just, you know, you, you might not be right. It might be a whole lot better than you think it is or a whole lot more tolerable. And so, yeah, rap, I love rap, but especially widening your options. I, I often think that very first point, point widening your options I like to say, just think and instead of or. Yeah. You know? Yes. 
And you're right. Like someone may go through fertility treatments and say certain things are really awful, but the way you experience them could be totally different. And in that last point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so in everything about parenting, everything about our lives, I think is individualized. Like empathy is about understanding the emotion. It's not about saying I had IVF, so it must be like this for you, you know, or approaching it like that. Um, case in point, I actually have a friend that had to use a surrogate to conceive her daughter, but, and not that that was an easy process for her, but she was born with a heart condition. So she knew her whole life, she wouldn't be able to carry a child. So her path to that was significantly less traumatic than somebody who maybe had an emergency hysterectomy or just couldn't conceive over time. You know, it's a very different, she, her whole reproductive story around having children had to do with, I wouldn't be able to carry a child. So we're either going to use a surrogate or we're going to adopt. And yeah, it's very different. Yeah. She knew her whole life. So that's a different story than maybe you already thought you're going to be able to do that. And that was like kind of taken away. And I think another thing, and you mentioned it a little bit ago is, is people get so fixated on like getting to that point, right. And right. not getting the distance from it. Um, did anyone you interview in stories kind of have a hard time with that or couldn't look at people that had children or those kind of things I think really affect women when they're going through this? I honestly think all of the women did. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we all, well, okay. So actually I, I take that back. So the book has three sections on, um, essentially we did these interviews and when they started repeating themselves, we stopped interviewing people and we pulled out the themes. And so a third of the women were over 35 because of indecision. And a third were infertility, like my case where we started younger, but just ended up being older because of the infertility. And then a third were just sort of how life happens. Kind of like you said earlier, maybe you get divorced or something like that. Um, and so in the indecision route, two of the women had like no problem getting pregnant. Um, and so that wasn't an issue. And then I think in the, how the life happens, I'm just trying to remember, cause it's been a little while before I, since I've read the whole thing. Um, I think there was like one couple that it wasn't a problem, but anybody else who's actually struggled to get pregnant, everyone. And we actually have coping advice on that too. We came up with the term predicate. So etiquette during pregnancy and, and what to do when somebody announces their pregnancy, because it is very painful. And I think women feel so much shame about that pain and there's no need to feel shame about it and just being gentle with oneself and allowing oneself. It's, it's a grieving process. It's a grief. Even if you end up with children, there's a grieving process that it had to be such a painful experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I often liken it like, you, you know, let's say you were very close to your father and he dies when you're a kid, when you go to your friend's wedding and you see her father dancing with her, you might be very happy for her, but very sad for yourself that you don't get that. And it's the same thing. Um, and also the age, you know, the age you're at, probably most of your friends are having children. And so in, you never know when someone's going to surprise you with that announcement. Um, yes, I think that can be very painful and yeah. things on social media or any of that can be very painful. So, um, you know, what's something from your own story that you could share with our listeners that you, you experienced? So related to that, or just in general with the journey, yeah, like in anything from your journey that. 
I think one thing I would put out there is one of the couples we um, interviewed was they were a same-sex couple and they would go to all the appointments together. And one thing that the non-gestational carrier said was, she's like, I felt so bad for all these other women who's, um, and I don't know, I honestly don't know how, how, like, if we were to compare like heterosexual couples versus same-sex couples, you know, who's going to the fertility clinic together or not, right? Like, I don't, I don't know those numbers, but they, they implied from their experience, because you're there a lot that typically they would be there together and the other women would be by themselves. And actually it may not even be related to, you know, your sexual identity. Um, but she was like, I just really feel bad for all these other women. And in my mind, I was like really happy. My husband didn't do those appointments with me um, because it was already so humiliating and it already interferes with your intimacy so much that like the more I felt he could be separated. And the other thing piece that goes with it is he was much more ambivalent about he was on board with having a child, but he was much more ambivalent about doing all these things to get the child, right? And at the time, it was sometimes really frustrating. But what I had to remind myself is it was actually really nice having that even-keeled presence. And in the biggest possible picture, I'm actually relieved that I was more the driving force because if it had been the opposite, I think that can cause... A, if you can't conceive, then an enormous amount of pain and guilt. But also, it's my—it's really the the birth person's body that goes through all of this. Um, you know, the the male or the non gestational partner doesn't physically really have any of this stuff going on, and so I feel like it made it a lot cleaner in terms of making decisions. I could, we made them together, but I could drive it. And I never, I never felt pressured to do anything. I never felt like I was disappointing him when we didn't get pregnant. And so I thought that was very interesting because for this couple, they were all in it together, every single thing wanting to be, you know, and part of it might be because the other mother had no biological connection to the child. And maybe that was her way of being involved possibly. Um, so I thought that, and then I also thought for me, prior to all of this, I had very little interest in pregnancy or anything. Like I always wanted kids, but I was like never into like hearing people's birth stories. Like I really, you know, the process of getting there was like whatever. Um, and certainly like I would have been like, I'll take the epidural in the parking lot. Thank you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what I need to right. <laughs> Yeah. Do we still knock women out? Because that could that could be a good option for me. Um But what was so funny is because it was so medicalized and I felt so powerless in this, I got 100% into having the least intervention birth as possible, really experiencing that. I had completely unmedicated birth. Um, I did opt for a hospital. I just, I felt more comfortable there, but um, yeah, it was really beautiful. And that became critically important to me. And so that was an interesting, and I've heard that before. And I've seen, I've seen it go both ways. I've seen other women want every intervention because they're so nervous about stuff, but I I felt I needed to have that power back and I needed to really be able to experience this is the really sacred transition that it is. Yeah. And like you said, everything's individual. So your needs are your needs. And like, you know, had your journey been different, maybe your needs would have been different. Right. Right. 
another point in your in your chapters is how does how do you see stress playing a role in this process? Because it's kind of a probably a big point. We do focus on that quite a bit. And I know at least two of the narratives talk a lot about stress management. And when one talks about um, sort of sort of being more mystical and inviting the baby spirit in and allowing for pregnancy to happen. So we will never say just relax and it will happen because that's so insulting, right? (laughs) Yes, I I don't think people like that at all. Um, And it's also not necessarily true. Right. I mean, one thing that we love is just the whole miracle of all this, that there isn't some perfect formula to have a baby. And why is it hard for some people and easy for others? And and there's no rhyme or reason. Right. Um, And so, but we do know that when we think about, and this is not blaming or shaming the couple in any way, especially the birth person, when we think about the hypothalamic pituitary axis, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, this is controlling pretty much every hormone in our body. And these hormones are where it's all about. And I don't just mean estrogen and progesterone, but we think about cortisol. We think about our thyroid hormones. We think about insulin. We think about even testosterone, even you know, in females. All of this stuff is super important. We also think about um, oxygenation to the placenta and high stress alters all these processes. And so it's really important to manage. You're going to have life. You can't have life without having stress. That's not, that's not possible, but really being able to manage and reduce stress as much as possible is critical in the process because, because we know it causes cellular damage. And like, as I said, it, it affects and alters all of these processes, which is going to make it harder to get pregnant or to maintain a pregnancy. And that is not blaming anyone in any way for their struggles. It's just biological fact and so we also talk about, you know, obviously the process is really stressful if it's not, even when it goes well, right? People, well, you know, it's, it's like you said, like you can't control a lot of the stuff and yeah. Yeah. It's the biggest transition of your life. And so if you're not stressed out at some point, <laughs> that's a little concerning to me. Yes. But we also talk about too, like, you know, this is a time I think that when you are facing a longer fertility journey, scheduling in the appointments, and that doesn't just necessarily mean like fertility clinic appointments. I'm a huge believer in acupuncture and different Chinese medicine and Reiki. Psychotherapy is critically important. Um, And so when we think about navigating all of that, navigating choices, you know, whatever you can do to minimize the stress associated with that. And also to really, I, I think a lot of women give too much of their energy away and that can really interfere with the whole process. And so really being okay with saying no to things. And sometimes that means saying no to the baby showers because they're too painful to go to. Um, and that's okay. But saying no to things in general, so you can really heal your body. Yeah. Yes. I love that concept of just protecting your energy and knowing what you can handle and what you need to to avoid in healthy ways. Um, so yeah, uh, I did acupuncture with my second child cause I was, I was very anxious the first time around. Yeah. 
And it really relaxed me. Um, and it helps keep the stress manageable. Obviously you're right there. There's, um, healthy levels of stress, but when it gets too high, it can damage us. So kind of finding your own path in that way. Yep. Um, what about, you know, dealing with the grief part, if it doesn't work out for you, is there any best tips you have or anything in, in that realm? I think it's critically important to acknowledge it as a loss, um, especially if the the road really has ended. Um, Grieve it like a death. Yeah. Attend to it. I think getting professional help is great because it's so, it's like anything, I think our friends and family can be supportive, but it's it's really a very unique experience to desperately want a child and then not to have a child. There's a lot of people who won't have children, but they'll look back and say like, oh, well, you know, it wasn't like they really, there are people I believe who, de- who definitely want kids. That's non-negotiable in their life. And then there's people that it's kind of like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's it's sort of part of this. Of course you have kids. And then they get older and they're like, I don't even know if I really wanted kids. So it's kind of okay. I didn't have them. But for the people who desperately wanted them, it's really critical. They grieve it. And it can be hard for those other friends to really understand that if they, if they were kind of like, well, you know, whatever, it didn't happen. I'm, I'm a, I'm a wonderful aunt to my nieces and nephews or, you know, um, or to the people who never wanted kids at all, obviously they can be empathetic, but to really find support in that, I think also to really look for meaning in other aspects of your life and double down on that, but it's not a replacement. I mean, if you desperately wanted to have children, then volunteering with children is not a replacement, but it can be helpful to think about like, I am important in that child's life, or maybe you don't do anything with kids, but you volunteer in, in your community at a homeless shelter or something like I really have made a, di- a difference. And I think to think about it, like any loss, it's not going to be, it's going to peek its head up here and there. Like, don't be surprised. Right. I remember, um, I had a job once as a cons- consult liaison in a hospital, which is essentially you just walk around and evaluate any patient that the has been identified with a psychiatric need, right? So you can go to all these different floors. So I'm in there doing an evaluation on a guy who was having like a hip replacement or something really random like that. And I'm just doing the, the demographics and this guy is like 75. I'm just doing the initial demographic questions. And I say, okay, you know, are you married? I'm a widow. Do, do you have any children? And he just started to cry and say that never happened for us. You know, it's... Yeah. I I had a male client like that. It it just didn't happen for him. And he was just as distraught as I've I've seen a lot of women. And yeah, I think that sometimes stays with you. It stays with you like any grief or loss and to be embracing of that and care for it. I'm going to feel a little more sad when I go to my uh, nephew's college graduation because I didn't get to have a child to do that. And that's okay. It's okay. Attend to yourself. Yeah. And give yourself what you need during those times of grief and, you know, grieve it when it comes up. Um, One of my favorite analogies for grief is it's like a big ball in the room that hits a lot and it gets smaller, but it hits you at different times throughout your life. And sometimes it just never totally goes away, but um, hits you out of the blue and you just feel it. I love that analogy. So this was an excellent book. I really think anyone that 
interested in uh, beyond the the egg timer um, or just to read a great book and really great stories about women. And it was wonderful. Any last um, thing you want to tell the listeners about your book, where to find it? Yeah, well, thank you. It's on Amazon. You can get the Kindle version or the soft cover. You can also ask your local bookstore to order it. They can do that, but Amazon's probably the easiest. And I would say if you're out there thinking about having a child, don't let your age be a deterrent. And if you're in the middle of the struggle, just really know that you're not alone in that. Many of us have gone through that. Um, And if you are having you know, some feelings around having a child a little bit later in life, just know that you're giving your child the be- your best. You're giving your child your best and how amazing a parent that's going to make you. Absolutely. And again, great advice, really wonderful advice in the book and great stories that anyone could relate to and understand and just get support through this book. So um, thanks again for joining me and I appreciate your time today and please get this book. So, (laughs) all right, have a good day, everyone.